Every haunted place has a story with a dark past. This is Ghost Encounters Podcast. Due to the graphic and violent things discussed on this episode, listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, all you spooky people, to the third episode of the second season of Ghost Encounters Podcast. I am paranormal investigator Justin Torok. I'm Kayla Bolash, and I'm back. And I'm Jordan, the group scientist. So last episode, we did Lizzie Borden, which is a very famous axe murder. And the three of us were kind of looking stuff up, and there's actually a significant number of axe murders that have happened throughout history. Uh, so we thought that uh, the next episode would be cool if we all brought a different axe murder to the table. And it just so happens that all three of these happened in the 1900s. So this is a 1900s axe murder podcast episode. And yes, Kayla, you are back. I'm Yay! back. We missed you in the last couple episodes. I missed you guys too. Life was really hectic. I needed some time to get everything all sorted out, but we're good and we're ready to jump right back into it. Hey. Happy to have you back. Yes, life happens, especially during the summertime. All kinds of stuff is going on. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, we are happy you are back. This is going to be a very cool uh, episode. Let's uh, hack right into it. The first one I looked up was the Velisca Axe Murders. The first time I heard about this was actually with you, Jordan, when we were watching an episode of Ghost Adventures, and they went to the Velisca Axe Murder house. And I would say it was a very cool, interesting, and dark episode as well. That's a good way of describing it, dark. All right, let's get into the Velisca Axe Murders. On a quiet residential street in the small town of Villisca, Iowa, a horrible tragedy occurred a century ago that continues to leave its effects on this small town. The walls of this pristine home still protect the identity of a murderer who bludgeoned to death the entire family of Josiah Moore and two overnight guests on June 10th, 1912. What's more, not only do her walls hold the secret of the killer these many years later, they also continue to house a number of paranormal entities. Nestled in the hills of southwest Iowa, Villisca is a small rural community of about 1,300 people today. But in the early 1900s, it was a bustling railroad town with more than 2,500 people. Within this thriving environment lived Josiah B. Moore, one of Villisca's most prominent businessmen, the owner and operator of the Moore Implement Company, which is actually a John Deere franchise company. He was a solid competitor with other area businessmen. On December 6, 1899, Josiah married Sarah Montgomery at the home of her parents, and the couple would have four children, Herman, Catherine, Boyd, and Paul. JB, as Josiah was formerly called, and his wife Sarah were well-liked throughout the community. They were also active in the Presbyterian Church and were described as being friendly and helpful to their neighbors. On Sunday, June 9th, 1912, the Moore family, as well as the Stillinger family, attended church. An annual event was also held that Sunday evening called Children's Day Program, which had been coordinated by Sarah Moore. That evening, nine-year-old Catherine Moore invited her friends, 12-year-old Lena Stillinger, and her sister, seven-year-old Ina May, for a sleepover. The girls accepted, and after the program ended at 9.30 p.m., the Moore family, along with the Stillinger sisters, walked home from church, arriving around 9.45 or 10 p.m. This was the last time all eight people were seen alive. The next morning, Moore's neighbor, Mary Peckham, noticed that the Moores were not outside taking care of their regular chores and that the house was unusually still. 
Between 7 a.m. and 8 a.m., she knocked on the door, but received no answer. When she tried to open the door, she found it locked. She's nosy. Right. I well, I think I think back then, like, yeah. the usual thing was to, like, wake up early. Do your tend, stuff. Tend your chickens, do tend your chores, your you yes. know, stuff like that. And if someone's not awake by a certain time doing that, like... They know they have an entire family. The kids yeah. aren't outside. Yes. Yeah. My neighbors know. called me out on being up early the other day, and it was 9 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> so I also um, read that they thought that it was kind of weird to have the doors locked. I guess oh. they didn't really lock the doors back then, and they could just, like, go into each other's homes no and be thanks. like, hello, here I am. I mean, am. back then, in a, in a small town, I could yeah. definitely yeah. see that happening. <laughs> but she received no answer, so she was very concerned, and she decided to call Josiah's brother, Ross Moore. When Ross Moore arrived, he knocked very loudly on the door and shouted. He was attempting to get some kind of attention of someone inside, but failed. He then tried to look through the windows, but found that all the curtains were drawn or the windows were covered. He eventually took out his keys, unlocked the door, and entered the house. But he quickly returned to the front porch and instructed Mary Peckham to call the sheriff. What he had seen was shocking. The entire Moore family had been murdered, as well as the two young overnight guests, all bludgeoned with an axe while they slept. This Iowa family home turned into a slaughterhouse overnight. In the upstairs master bedroom lay 43-year-old Josiah Moore and 39-year-old Sarah Moore, both bludgeoned in the head, their bed linen stained heavily with blood. In the adjacent upstairs bedrooms were the Moore children, 11-year-old Herman, 10-year-old Mary Catherine, 7-year-old Boyd, and 5-year-old Paul, who had all also been bludgeoned in the head while they slept. In the main level guest room, the bodies of Lena Stillinger, age 12, and her sister, Ina, age 8, were also found dead, killed in the same manner as the family. Josiah Moore was the only victim who was hacked with the sharp end of the axe, but the killer quickly changed to the blunt backside. Doctors estimated that the time of death was somewhere shortly after midnight. All of the victims' faces were covered with the bedcloths after they were killed. The ceilings in the parents' bedroom and the children's room showed gouge marks apparently made by the upswing of the axe. So this guy was using the backside blunt end of the axe to bash their faces in and was lifting the axe so high that the sharp end was hitting the ceiling. I'm surprised that nobody heard this. Like, yeah, how, I don't so, understand. Like, I know the houses were probably farther away than they are now. No, but inside the house. But, yeah, like, how did other people not wake up in that. the house? Yeah. And how did people not hear anything from far right. away? Like, or banging even, bothers the shit out of me when I hear my neighbors. Or even the person, like, next to you laying mm-hmm. in bed. Yeah. How do you not wake up from that? You know? The axe is hitting the ceiling and coming down and bashing someone's face in. Yeah. This isn't a quiet act. This goes back to Amityville, mm-hmm. where the family is all I shot. I was just thinking that. At like night, how everyone and sleeps no one wakes through up. this magically. And I think that's why the paranormal like concept gets played through these stories. Yes. It's because they because there's it's some, no something logical freaky explanation. has to be yeah. going on. Doctors suggested that the axe murderer killed each person and then went back one by one, smashing them again, and again, and again, and then covered them with the sheets. Some people might <clears throat> claim that he bashed each one once or twice to kill them or almost kill them, 
and then went all the way back through the house again. So that's what I was just thinking, is that but maybe still, it was a quick boop, 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 but still, like, more than one room, that is just... obviously, it, it appears that Josiah was first, yes. right? If this guy first hacked him with the sharp end, and then switched the blunt end mm-hmm. for, for, to finish him off, and his wife, it... it Someone had to have heard something. Someone heard something, you know? and maybe they were just too scared to do anything. Yeah. And this plays into the fact that Josiah actually had the most hits out of yeah. anybody, and his face was completely It gone. seems very personal. Yes. It's very personal, with the sheets being <clears throat> pulled over everyone after murder. That's just yeah, very strange. I think when you, Jordan, you and I were talking about that killer mom that you, were, that you did research on, Yeah. she also... Mm-hmm. Pulled bed sheets over. Yeah, and you said that that usually shows a sign of remorse. remorse. Yeah, yeah, and feeling bad for what you've done. But how do you bash the faces in of all these people and feel remorse? I, I yeah. Just, I mean, I don't have words. <laughs> That's just insane. and little children too. Yeah, like if this if this killer had a quarrel with Josiah, exactly, it would make sense. But he but killed why the children? Everyone. Yeah. There was a meek attempt to wipe the blood off the axe. The axe belonged to Josiah Moore and came from his woodpile. The axe was found in the room occupied by the Stillinger girls. A pan of bloody water was discovered on the kitchen table, as well as a plate of uneaten food. So, it seems like this guy tried to clean up. It sounds like it. At least like a little it. bit. Yeah. And ate a half a plate of food. And got hungry. And he got a little peckish. I mean... Axe swinging is probably hungry work. Lumberjacks. Yeah. I saw that um, it said that apparently there was like slabs of bacon left out of the icebox, like as if he was going to continue eating and make their food. He needed some protein. That's insane. That's ridiculous. Well, it's um, just like BTK and his need for drinking water after all of his murders. They're bizarre. Do not know about that. BTK, he would drink a glass of water in the victim's home after he killed everyone, and then when he was like in uh, his court trial, they were like, "Oh, you know, you're you're just like all those other like awful people. You know, you have no like manliness to you. You're awful." And he's like, "But I drank water." at the scene, and other people didn't do that. And congratulations, Dennis. Yeah, he, he, right. wanted, he wanted a fucking gold star. Yep. Yeah, that was his little, like, tagline that he, he did. Was. Oh yeah. my god, that makes me think, that makes me think of uh, Home Alone. Yep, the, the, wet, wet, bandits. the wet bandits. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the it's just the bandits. dumbest thing in the world. And then the <laughs> podcast that I listened to, Morbid, they did a whole thing on BTK, and the, like, ongoing joke in the fandom is, like, fucking Dennis, because he's just annoying. He's like, oh, fucking Dennis, drinking your water, because you're a big fucking deal, Dennis. Ooh, (laughs) congratulations, you're the only serial killer that drinks water. Like... Right. Oh, my God. He thought he was so Uh, cool. But this whole story is a little strange, because no one woke up from the sound of squeaky floorboards, Mm -mm. or the sound of an axe gouging the ceiling, the sound of an axe bashing in someone's face... And all of the doors were locked. Peckham came and all the doors were locked. Yes. How does a killer leave and lock the doors from the inside? The only suggestion is perhaps he was in the house the entire time. Mm-hmm. Waiting. Watching. Apparently during the search um, of the house, two cigarette butts were found in the attic suggesting that the killer or killers waited patiently in the attic until everybody in the house was asleep. 
Which makes sense, because there's no way he or they left no. after they killed these people, because the house was locked from the inside. Yeah. It's so, the whole thing's sketchy. Some, there's more to it that there we is. just don't know about. There is. Absolutely. And when you talk to anyone who um, has been here or has uh, or knows the story, it it is uh, said that the killer or killers waited in the attic and waited for the family to get home and waited there until someone unlocked the doors the next day. The entire time, just staring, watching, That's waiting. That's crazy. I don't like it. <laughs> I just like, that freaked me yeah. out. <laughs> and Freaky. we mentioned no one woke up, but it was uh, discovered um, that one of the Sillinger girls, uh, Lena, I believe, yeah. uh, she looked like she had defense wounds on her and her dress was pulled up a bit. Um, there is thoughts that perhaps she was also sexually assaulted, um, but that's never been confirmed. Yeah. This was something that didn't happen in a small town like this. This shocked everyone, and it shocked the country. With darkness came the fear that a madman was on the loose and might strike again. Families partnered with their neighbors to stand shotgun guard all night, and windows were nailed shut. In the ensuing days, every lock in town was sold out, Residents openly carried weapons, neighbors looked with suspicion upon neighbors, and rumors and accusations ran rampant. Soon, newspaper reporters and private detectives flooded the streets. Bloodhounds were brought in, and law enforcement agencies from neighboring counties and states joined forces. The murders began a chain of events that split the small town and forever changed the course of the lives of its residents. The Velisca Axe murders knocked the Titanic sinking off the headlines. So the Titanic sake in April, it was in headlines and newspapers for months, and this just knocked it right off the front page. Yeah, well I mean, there's so much more juicy details than a ship sinking and everybody died in the ocean. Yeah. Yes. You know, it's happened in a small little tight-knit community, and way bigger deal. And, you know, while no one was ever convicted of the murders, there seemed to be no shortage of suspects. One of the first suspects was Sarah's brother-in-law, Lee Van Gilder, who was the ex-husband of her sister Mary. A man prone to violence and having previous brushes with the law, there was bad blood between him and the family. Van Gilder, however, was later cleared. Looking at motive, the authorities began to investigate Frank F. Jones, a prominent businessman and Iowa State Senator. Years before he opened his own business, Josiah Moore had worked for Frank Jones as a top salesman in Jones of Villisca, a hardware and implement store. In 1907, Josiah left the company and started his own competing business, taking with him the coveted John Deere franchise. The two became bitter enemies so much that by 1910, they wouldn't speak and would cross the street to avoid meeting each other. Not believing that Jones would commit the crime himself, investigators began to look at a man by the name of William Mansfield, who from a tip had learned he may have been hired by Senator Frank F. Jones to murder the Moore family. In July 1916, Mansfield was arrested in Kansas City, Kansas, and extradited to Iowa to face Montgomery County Grand Jury. Though local opinion anticipated Mansfield would be bound over for trial, the jury refused to indict him on the grounds that his alibi checked out. In the meantime, Frank Jones lost his re-election as senator, but was never charged with the crime. Nine months before the murders at Villisca, a similar case of axe murders occurred in Colorado Springs, Colorado. 
Two axe murder cases followed in Ellsworth, Kansas and Paola, Kansas as well. Um, the cases were very similar to the point where it raised a possibility of maybe being committed by the same people. It is speculated that these also could have been committed by the same person that committed the murders that I'm actually going to talk about no. next, which are the 1911 through 1912 Axeman of New Orleans killings, uh, which I feel like most people are probably familiar with thanks to American Horror Story, but there's some pretty interesting stuff in there. So. Very cool. Every stranger or transient to the small town were also suspects. One such man was Andy Sawyer, a transient that moved from job to job he gained temporary work for the uh, Burlington Railroad on the very morning of the murder. According to the railroad crew, uh, he purchased a newspaper that headlined the murders and was much interested in it. The crew also complained that Sawyer slept with his clothes on and with an axe close by and was a loner. Afterward, he talked a lot about the Villisca murders and whether or not a killer had been apprehended. He also told uh, the crew foreman that he had been in Villisca that Sunday night and was afraid that he may be a suspect, which is why he left. So no wonder this guy was a suspect. I mean, he's sleeping with an axe. Yeah. He keeps asking if they ever found anyone, and he was in town that night. Yeah, it looks, it's like a walking red flag. Yeah. The crew's foreman, Thomas Dyer, was suspicious and turned him over to the sheriff on June 18th, 1912. The foreman would later testify that before he turned uh, Sawyer over to the authorities, that he walked up behind him and Sawyer was rubbing his head with both hands and then all of a sudden jumped up and said to himself, I will cut your goddamn heads off. Oh. While making striking motions with his axe and hitting the piles in front of him. Though Sawyer's name often came up in the grand jury testimonies, he was eventually dismissed as it was found that he was actually in Osceola, Iowa on the night of the murder. The alibi was extremely tight as he had been arrested for uh, vagrancy at 11 p.m. that evening. Another suspect was Reverend George Kelly. He was actually tried twice for the murder. The first one ended in a hung jury, which is something like a split decision right. where they can't figure out what the hell they want to do. And the second one was an acquittal. Apparently it was like a really weird guy like he got caught like peeping into people's houses and like There's just got hung up on a lot of stuff that yeah that kind of thing happening with reverends back in that time yeah like oh, asking yeah. for like women to like pose nude for him like young younger oh, yeah. girls i guess yeah. yeah he he was a creep as the investigation continued um the focus turned to locals in the community and a number of possible suspects emerged as as we saw with the reverend the speculation of the townspeople caused them to identify themselves by who they believed committed the crime. Friendships became strained and, in many cases, permanently broken. Wow. So this murder just tore this town apart. Yeah. I can see why. Obviously, a horrible tragedy, a horrible, bloody, disgusting tragedy took place in this house. And as a result, it is extremely haunted. Over the years, there has been a long history of paranormal activity in this house. Previous tenants have said they have seen a shadowy man with an axe standing at the foot of their bed, seen images of bloody shoes, clothing from dressers have been thrown around the room, and that they hear the sounds of children crying. In one instance, a man reported that while he was sharpening a knife, it suddenly turned around and stabbed him in the thumb. He explained that it felt as if someone had a grip on his wrist. One family reportedly ran out of the house screaming one night and moved out the very next day. The house now offers overnight stays for the adventurous and day tours for the faint of heart. 
Visits by paranormal investigators have provided audio, video, and photographic proof of paranormal activity. Child laughter, small footsteps, closets closing of their own have all been reported as if children are kind of playing hide-and-seek. But every paranormal investigator has felt the heavy, dark coldness that lingers in the air. A faint, deep laugh is heard, accompanied with the feeling that someone is breathing on their neck, ready to attack at any moment. Tours have been cut short by falling lamps, moving ladders, and flying objects. Psychics have confirmed the presence of spirits dwelling in the home, and many have actually communicated with them, and skeptics have left believers. Some have reported feeling an evil presence in the attic, where it is thought that the murder hid while waiting for the family to fall asleep. One story states that an individual tried to enter the attic, and an unknown force prevented her from doing so. Now, we mentioned Ghost Adventures were here. Um, the EVP that stands out that they got, for those of you who don't know, EVP stands for Electronic Voice Phenomenon. That's the spirit voices that you hear um, in the audio, audio recorders. But people think that the murderer's spirit actually also haunts this house, which is where this dark, cold evil uh, comes from. And Ghost Adventures captured an EVP that says, I killed six kids. Oh, wow. You can hear it clear as day. It says, I killed six kids. It's typically not something you'd want to brag about. Well, for someone who did a murder like this... He seems pretty proud. Yeah, I'd say. Yeah. Killed people and went to go eat their food afterwards. Yeah, and just went back up the attic, hung out. Oh my gosh. It's fucking creepy. What do you want me to say? I'm scared. I just thought I heard something. <laughs> you got me fucked up. Shit <laughs> got me fucked up. Because, you know, this doesn't mean that it's, like, ghosts. Like, this is, like, people. People freak me out more than the ghosts, yo. Yeah. See, the ghosts scare me more than the people do. Mm-mm. Really? I think people scare me more than ghosts. Oh. People can fuck me up. Like, yeah, hurt me. Kill me. The whole reason it's haunted is because a person committed these yeah. awful crimes. Scary. Yeah. Creeped out. Now, now I'm going to sleep now, with the light on. Jordan's thinking she's hearing things, so we're going to take a, we're going we're gonna to chop into a short break, <laughs> and we will be right back. Ghost Encounters Podcast is sponsored by Phoenix Fire Media. Bring the heat to your online presence with their digital marketing experts, professional photography, and video productions. Visit phoenixfiremedia.com. If you're enjoying Ghost Encounters Podcast, hit subscribe. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at Ghost Encounters PA. To watch full episodes of the Ghost Encounters show, visit ghost-encounters.com. He strolls down the street, his shadow slender and contorted in front of him. The click-clack of his shiny black oxfords smack the cobblestone like the mule hooves and carriages of the French Quarter. Smiling and content, he glances around at the neighborhood filled with the sound of live jazz music from every direction. Singing a song that's both lively and tragic, their notes carry through the Mississippi River breeze out into the bayou and move through the veins of this dark crescent city. The windows of the cottages and stately homes adorned with their painted columns, colorful wood shutters, and petite gardens are peeled open. 
exposing themselves lustfully to the mysterious demon parading by. Kayla, yes. you researched the Axeman of New Orleans. I did indeed, yep. Can you jazz us through the story of the Axeman of I New Orleans? I suppose I could. So I'm going to start with probably the most interesting part of the entire story, um, and it is the letter that the Axeman wrote to the city of New Orleans um, to kind of give them a heads up on what to look out for. Um, this is a lengthy letter, so I'm only going to read like the first two paragraphs sure. to really set the tone, um, and then I'll paraphrase the rest. But it starts out, um, the date, he also put the location of his letter, and the location was hell. March 13th, 1919. Esteemed mortal of New Orleans, they have never caught me and they never will. They have never seen me, for I am invisible, even as the ether that surrounds your earth. I am not a human being, but a spirit and a demon from the hottest hell. I am what you Orleanians and your foolish police call the Axeman. When I see fit, I shall come and claim other victims. I alone know whom they shall be, I shall leave no clue except my bloody axe besmeared with blood and brains of whom I have sent below to keep me company. Um, so this letter continues to go on just kind of talking about how he is a demon um, yeah. straight from hell here to terrorize and kill people to keep him company. It sounds like he really does think of himself as a demon. He and does. It's actually very... Well written. It is actually a really well written letter. Um, and later on, he says the only thing that you can do to keep yourself safe from the Axeman is to play jazz music. Someone's here. Quick pause. We are hearing things outside our studio that may be <laughs> paranormal or not. Um, where have you left off? Is. Yeah. If you play jazz music, he won't hurt you. He's a cool cat. He's a cool cat. <laughs> and he, he's not going to hurt you if there is jazz being played. So the entire city of New Orleans was just Filled. covered in jazz music, just coming out of people's homes, windows open, doors open. Everyone wanted to make sure that they could keep themselves safe from the infamous Axeman of New Orleans. Not going to lie, that's pretty badass. It is. Like, there, this is how you keep yourself safe. He took control of the whole city. Yes, he exactly. did. And there's a whole theory that this entire spree of murders was just because he didn't hear enough jazz in public, and wow. he wanted he now wanted jazz to now, be yeah, more mainstream. Right. Um, so there is a theory. I don't know if I believe that theory, but there is a theory that he was just a jazz connoisseur who just really wanted to hear more jazz while he was in public. Um, so yeah, I guess we can jump on into the beginning of the story. This takes place in 1918, was the first um, of the murders. So the murders started in on May 23rd of 1918, and the total death count was six people. Um, however, there were an additional six victims who were also injured by the Axeman. Interestingly, the first murders um, that did take place, the cause of death was actually a uh, straight razor to the throat, mm. and the victims were then later beaten with the axe, um, but they were not actually killed by the axe. So even though he was coined the axe murderer, um, the first murders were just a slit to the throat. So typically the Axeman would break into homes um, by popping off back panels and sneaking in or just breaking in through back doors if they were able to uh, get in that way. 
Um, the intruder would then attack everyone. Uh, sometimes they would attack everyone in the house. Sometimes it would just be whoever was available. available. Um, and it is also believed that he really only wanted to murder the women of the household. And most of the time, the men just kind of got in the way. Um, right. Which explains why a lot of the people that survived their injuries were men. Um, he kind of maimed them to the point where he could get away, but he didn't feel like they needed to be killed. Um, another very similar occurrence between almost all of the murders was that a majority of the victims were um, Italian-American immigrants. So it is kind of believed that maybe that was um, a part of his motive, was that he did not like the Italian immigrants coming into New Orleans um, and possibly messing with his jazz music that he liked to listen to. Yeah, and it makes... I mean, I was reading that he had xenophobia, but I don't know if it was a fear that he had of immigrants. I think it was more of like a hatred. Yeah. Um, which makes sense because the whole jazz thing makes sense because immigrants wouldn't be listening to jazz music. Yeah. So he'd want them to listen to jazz music and if he didn't like them, he would target the women because then they couldn't breed. Exactly. Oh, just like an excuse to go after that said group of people. Yes. Right. And like we said earlier, him targeting women would make sense as to why he, if it was race-based because then he could stop the reproduction. Um, it is also believed that the, these crimes possibly could have been uh, motivated by sex and it very well could have been someone that just really hated women in general. True. Um, and he wanted to take it out on vulnerable women, especially since a lot of these happened in their homes, their bedrooms, where they felt safest. There are criminologists who um, do believe that this could possibly be linked to mafia crimes since so many people were Italian-Americans. Um, there's not too much evidence backing if this could have been any kind of organized crime, but because they were all carried out in very similar ways, it very easily could have been. Um, but there's really nothing supporting that theory. It's just kind of an idea since mafia right. crimes and organized crimes do tend to go hand in hand with the um, Italian theme that we have going on here. All right, so we do have um, the victims, and I'm going to read their names just because I feel like since there were six of them, they do all have, uh, they deserve to have their names be said, especially since this was so long ago and tends to just be like kind of hyped up right. in, uh, like I said, a lot of us have seen this in American Horror Story. I think a lot of people forget that this was an actual crime that really did happen. Um, so these six individuals I have here are Joseph Maggio, who was an Italian grocer. And his wife, Catherine, was also attacked, and they were the first. Uh, that was May 23rd of 1918, and they were sleeping when they were killed in their beds. So these are the ones that had their throats cut with a sharp razor. Correct. And then their heads bashed in. Yes. Yeah. They were in their home on the corner of Upper Line and Magnolia Street when the murders were conducted. The Axeman did break into the home and eventually slit the husband and wife's throat with a straight razor, and upon leaving, he bashed their heads in with an axe. It's believed that that possibly could have been to kind of hide the cause of death, um, but it was still pretty obvious that their throats had been slashed open, so I'm not really sure how much bashing someone's face in really hides that. Yeah, it just seems more personal to yeah. continue to bash someone after they're already dead, just like yeah. with the previous story of the Velisca axe murders where they all their faces were bashed in with the axe. Yeah. And they were all killed one by one, and then the killer went back and continued to bash their faces in. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Um, the husband did actually survive the attack, but he did eventually pass um, moments later after he was discovered by his brothers. Mm. Uh, they were also in the apartment. The Axeman's clothing was found in the home. Uh, they do believe that he did change his clothing while he was there, whether that was to just go continue his night and walk around, um, or maybe he wanted to make sure that he wasn't taking any evidence home with him. But either way, uh, he left all of his clothing at so the So there scene. is a possibility, though, that he was wandering around New Orleans naked. I mean, if anyone was arrested for um, nudity that night, he very well could have been the Axeman. Uh, Catherine Maggio was the wife of Joseph, and she did pass. Louis Bessemer and his mistress, Harriet Lowe, were also attacked in their home, and that was in the morning of June 27th, 1918. Uh, they also were in the quarters at the back of his grocery store. So this was mm. um, another grocer who was killed. He was struck with a hatchet above his temple, which was, uh, again, very similar to an axe, but not quite an axe, um, which is pretty interesting. I think that a lot of these, while they do involve the axe, typically the axe isn't actually the murder weapon. Mm, yep. Yeah. Um, he did suffer a skull fracture from that hit, and later he was hacked over the left ear and found unconscious when police arrived at the scene. Uh, the couple was discovered shortly after 7 a.m. on the morning of the attack, and one of their bakery wagon drivers was actually who found them. As is mentioned previously, Lowe was hacked above her left ear and found unconscious at the scene of the crime before she was rushed to Charity Hospital. Um, Lowe did unfortunately become the center of a media crisis and circus, to be quite honest, just because people kept asking her about the attack. And as you can imagine, trying to like recount situations like that, mm -hmm. things tend to not line up completely. Yeah. Especially when you're suffering a head injury. Exactly. And you so, may completely believe that that happened. Unfortunately, because of that, people felt like she wasn't telling the truth or that she was lying about a lot of the stuff that happened or even sensationalizing it. Um, personally, I feel like when you're attacked in the head with a hatchet, maybe you just don't remember exactly what happened, um, yeah. piece for piece. So I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt on that one. Um, and then we do have the next victim was Anna Schneider. She was attacked in the early evening hours of August 5th, 1918. She was 28 years old, and she was also eight months pregnant. Um, she oh, did, geez. yeah, it's quite unfortunate. Um, she woke up in her uh, early morning hours in her bedroom and found a dark figure standing over her, and that dark figure then continued to bash her in the face repeatedly. Her scalp had been cut open, and her face was completely covered in blood. She was discovered after midnight by her husband, who was returning late from work. Schneider claimed that she remembered nothing of the attack and gave birth to a healthy baby girl two days later after the incident. Wow. Yeah. So she did live. She didn't have a miscarriage. She did not have a miscarriage. She lived through it. She had her baby. Yeah. There, wow, that's awesome. I didn't realize how many victims he attacked that survived. Yeah, so that's the thing. While I don't want to say 12 victims is a small number, because I feel like a lot of us, if you're into true crime, you hear all these big cases where the victim counts are way up in the double digits. But 12 victims, when you're just attacking homes that are typically husbands and wives, yeah. that's six separate attacks right there if you're thinking two victims a person. So it's not like this was one or two break-ins here and there. This was right. a slew of people just 
not knowing what to expect. And it wasn't just in New Orleans. There were some other cities around the New Orleans area that this was taking place in as well. So it wasn't just one city either. This was a whole area of Louisiana that just wow. did not know what to expect every single night. Um, their next one that we have is Joseph Romano. He was an elderly man and he was living with his two nieces, Pauline and Mary Bruno. His attack was just a few days later after Anna, which was August 5th. Joseph was attacked August 10th. Um, and Pauline and Mary woke up to the sound of commotion in the adjoining room where their uncle was sleeping. Upon entering the room, the sisters did discover that their uncle had taken a serious blow to his head. Um, this did cause two open cuts on his head. The assailant was fleeing the scene as they arrived, yet the girls were able to distinguish that he was a dark-skinned, heavy-set man who wore a dark suit and slouched hat. Romano, although seriously injured, was able to walk to the ambulance once it arrived, yet he died two days later due to severe head trauma. Um, the home had been ransacked, yet no items were stolen from Romano, and authorities found a bloody axe in the backyard and discovered that a panel of the back door had been chiseled away. Um, Romano, the Romano murder created a state of extreme chaos in the city, with residents living in constant fear of an axeman attack. I think that this is when they, like, finally realize, like, yo, we may have a serial killer. Right. Yeah, so the first two, it was pretty interesting. So, you know, the first, the second one was the hatchet, so it wasn't even really an axe. Uh, so they didn't have that to really compare, and it was completely different. I mean, this was someone that was attacked in their bedroom. The hatchet was yeah. just someone in the back of their grocery store. Right. And then, okay, now we have a third one. It's making sense. A fourth one, okay. People were terrified. Didn't know go, what to expect. Yeah, not to go off on a tangent, but because they said, a, like, a dark suit and a slouched hat, mm -hmm. that always makes me think of the, the like, hat man, the yes. shadow man. Yes. It freaks me yeah. out. Like, People I always would, see a shadow man in a hat. It takes me uh, to the Babadook. I would love to have a podcast episode that we talk about, like, shadow Ooh, people. Heck yeah. We should yes. do uh, Skinwalker Ranch. Your sister has to come on for that one because she has seen the shadow man. Yeah. Yes. I, the one thing that I don't like is that they said it's a dark-skinned man. I feel like in the early 1900s, it was really easy to just say, oh, yeah, yeah they were black. Or, well, oh, yeah, they weren't I mean, white. In the darkness of night. Exactly. No, in a suit and a hat. No. Come on. Of course, they looked like they had dark skin. What kind of skin did you actually see? Right. Yeah. Um, all right. So we are now at victim number seven, uh, who was Charles Cortamiglia. I really hope I said that uh, correctly. He was an Italian immigrant who lived with his wife, Rosie, and his infant daughter, Mary, on the corner of Jefferson Avenue and 2nd Street in Gretna, Louisiana. So like I said, this was one of the cities that was a little bit more like outside of New Orleans. It says um, online that this was a suburb across the Mississippi River. Um, so yeah, just a little bit further away from where the last few incidents had taken place. And on the night of March 10th, 1919, screams were heard coming from the Court Miglia residence. The um, grocer, um, I'm just going to skip that name. Uh, <laughs> a local neighbor rushed across the street to investigate. And upon his arrival, they did notice that uh, Charles and his wife and their daughter had all been attacked by an unknown intruder. Rosie was standing in the doorway with a serious head wound, clutching her deceased daughter. Oh, that's um, terrible. So, 
unfortunately the baby did pass but the mother did uh she did live from her injuries the couple was rushed to charity hospital same place as our last victim um, and it was discovered that they both had suffered skull fractures so nothing was stolen from this house either which is an ongoing pattern even though the last home was ransacked nothing has ever been stolen from these homes um so it does seem like maybe they're trying to set it up as it may have started that way but i don't think there was any kind of theft motive in any of this um like i said nothing was stolen from the house but a panel on the back door again had been chiseled away and a bloody axe was found on the back porch of the home charles was released two days later while his wife remained in the care of the doctors um and she did get her full consciousness back rosie made claims that Giordano and his 18-year-old son, Frank, were responsible for the attacks. The 69-year-old man was in too poor of health to have committed the crimes, uh, but she does believe that Frank Giordano, more than six feet tall and weighing over 200 pounds, would have been too large to fit through the panel as well. Um, but she still claims well, that Well, when neighbors the have quarrels, they always will assume that it was the neighbor. Exactly. Um, however, her husband does not agree. He says that that is not who committed these attacks. He's not really sure why, um, but he states that it does not appear that it was his neighbors who committed this. They got a divorce, attack. right? I believe they did. Is? Yeah. So even though the husband was very adamant that he does not feel that his neighbors committed these crimes, the police did arrest the neighbors. Um, so they were both arrested for the attempted murder. And they were charged. The men would later... Oh, I'm sorry. They were actually charged with murder for the baby that was killed. I wow. forgot that part. Um, so, yes, they were charged with the murder. And I would also like to add that, like, while it's not okay to accuse your neighbors of murder when they did not commit it, when you just watched your baby get killed by an axe, I'm probably willing to bet you're in shock and you're going to blame the first person that yeah. you even Absolutely. remotely think could have right. done something like that. And right like after that. the accident, he was the one that showed exactly. up. Exactly. So, yeah, yeah, I see. I see what you mean. Um, the men would later be found guilty and Frank was sentenced to be hung and his father was sentenced to life in prison. Charles did divorce his wife after the trial. Almost a year later, Rosie announced that she had falsely accused the two out of jealousy and spite. Oh my god. Her statement was the only evidence against the Giordanos, and they were released from jail shortly thereafter. Well, that's good. At least she admitted that she was wrong. Yes, yeah. Still, what a Karen bitch. I know. It's it's so sad. So yes, those were our three victims um, there. That was Rosie and Marie, Mary... I'm not sure if it's Marie or Mary. I believe it's Mary and Charles. Um, and then moving on, we're almost there. Okay, so we've got Steve Boca, who was also a grocer, was attacked in his bedroom as he slept. Um, there was an axe-wielding intruder that came in on August 10th, 1919. Uh, Boca awoke during the night to find this dark figure looming over his bed, and upon regaining consciousness, Boca ran to the street to the invest to investigate the intrusion, and he found that his head had been cracked wide open. 
Oh my gosh. Um, so he did run home to one of his neighbors, whose name was Frank, where he completely lost consciousness and just collapsed right there. Jeez. Nothing had been taken from the home yet again. However, the panel from the back door was chiseled away. Again, same thing. Yeah. So um, it is pretty common in all of these that that's kind of how it happened, except for the like one attack that was just in the back of the grocery store. Which does make me think that maybe they're not connected to any other kind of axe murders because uh, that's not something that's happened in other ones. But also maybe this was where he really perfected everything. So who really knows? Or maybe he realized, oh, they're starting to notice that I have that pattern and he dropped it because he didn't want to be linked to anything else. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know. Yeah. They they like their patterns. They do. Yeah. His is chiseled back panel Mm -hmm. versus that one guy who drank water. Exactly. Yes. Yes. They <laughs> yeah. all love their panel, their, uh, their patterns. Steve did recover from his injuries, um, but he could not remember any of the details from the attack. Um, this attack did take place after the emergence of the infamous Axeman letter though. So, um, this was now after the letter had been published and everyone was just like, holy shit, what do we need to do to not get murdered? Play jazz. I would literally be sleeping with jazz music. Honestly, I'd be walking around with a saxophone. Like, I don't know what to tell you. Call me Barney Simpson. Personally, I really like like jazz, so I would have no problem playing jazz throughout my house. I love jazz. I used to study in college to early jazz on Pandora. I love jazz music. Interesting. I'd be saved, everyone. I would live. I had to listen to so much jazz in high school that I want nothing to do with jazz now. (laughs) Art school. <laughs> All right, so victim 11 was Sarah Lawman, and she was attacked on the night of September 3rd, 1919. Um, she was actually discovered by her neighbors when they came to check on her because she lived alone, and they did have to break into the house because she didn't answer. Neighbors discovered Sarah, who was 19. She yeah, she's was, young. Yeah, she was a baby. Um, she was 19 years old. She was lying unconscious on her bed, suffering from a severe head injury and missing several teeth. Wow. Yeah, that You really gotta hit somebody to get those teeth to come out. That really is, like, what got me. Obviously, like, bashing someone's head in with an axe is one thing, but when you start knocking out teeth, that's, like, that's just insane to me. Um, It's all insane, don't get me wrong, but that's just wild. Uh, The intruder did enter the home, sorry, the apartment, through an open window on this one. There was no back panel situation happening, um, and she was beaten with a blunt object, a bloody axe was discovered on the front lawn of the building, and Lawman did recover from her injuries, yet she could not recall any details of the attack, which is completely understandable. And the final victim of the axe man was attacked on the night of October 27th, 1919. This was Mike Pepitone, and his wife was awakened by the noise that she heard, and she arrived at the door of the bedroom of her husband, Mike. She saw a large axe-wielding man was fleeing the scene. Um, Mike had been struck in the head and was covered in his own blood. Blood spatter covered the majority of the room, including a painting of the Virgin Mary. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That... Jeez. Yeah. That's eerie. <laughs> I'm not a religious Creepy. person, but even me, it's yeah, like, ooh, I don't, I don't like that. Yeah, I don't like that either. Mm-mm. Um, Mrs. Pepitone, the mother of six children, was unable to describe any characteristics of the killer. The Pepitone murder was the last of the alleged Axeman attacks. Um, so after this, he's never seen or heard from again. That's strange. I think it's weird that that was so close to Halloween. Mm-hmm. Like, it was, yeah. like, super close to Halloween. Yeah. 
What if it's like, what if it was like paranormally and he like came back and did all this shit and then right before Halloween vanished? <laughs> blah 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 blah. Well, it's, it's strange. Like, there's a lot of murderers that that get away, but they just disappear and you don't hear about them ever again. Exactly. Like the Zodiac Killer. Yeah. It just stops. Yeah. So that's really the story of the Axeman Killer. There are a whole bunch of theories as to who could have done it, um, but really nothing has played out. There's no evidence. There's no, like, oh, this is the one thing that makes us think this person did it. There's not much. Yeah, because back then, like, they didn't really have Mm-mm, forensics yeah. or anything else. You could else. just There's... leave your... The, the bloody weapon where it lay. They can't find your fingerprints or exactly. your DNA from right. that. And that's the thing. He left the murder weapon and Yeah, he didn't get two shits. Scenes. He didn't care, but there was nothing they could do yeah. to pinpoint who he was. No one had a ring doorbell. It's not like you're going to be like, <laughs> oh yeah, he went left. Yeah. Like, yeah. What I would have done if I was chief of police is staged three different homes in without separate areas jazz. without jazz music. Yeah. Guarded with police officers. That would have been smart. They apparently didn't think that through back in the day. And uh, maybe made a sign that said, I hate jazz. I hate jazz. Really, really, really lure this guy into these houses. Jazz is trash. (laughs) Changed my mind. That's, uh, I don't know. I did look up American Horror Story and see the guy that played the Axeman. Yes. He's just a freaky actor as it is. He is. I thought he did a good job. That was the first time... When that season came out, it was the first time I heard of uh, the Axeman of Dewar Lane, so I thought it was pretty interesting. Yeah. yeah, I'm a loser. I never saw American Horror Story, so when I saw okay. it come up, I had to Google. You saw, you heard about the Axeman and something else. What was it? Um, the originals, it actually takes place down in New Orleans in the French Quarter and all that stuff. Okay. It's, he's mentioned in season three, episode five, and season four, episode six. Yeah. So they probably just said like a quick little thing about him because gotcha. people probably are still talking about this. Oh, guy. absolutely. Oh, yeah. So that's the thing with the Axeman of New Orleans is that while he did have a lot of victims, it's not a crime where the crime scenes were like really heavily looked at. So we don't have like all the details like Justin had on his case. Yeah. This was much more of like while it did happen, it's much more of a like ghost story folklore, like, oh, the Axeman of New Orleans. Because right. even though these were real crimes, this was clearly a real person that committed these things. In a sense, it's kind of like a haunting because no one knows who it was. It was this yeah. ghost-like figure that just mm-hmm. showed up, committed these heinous acts, and was never seen again. And New Orleans, you know, it's, it's all spooky, voodoo, spooky, yeah. spooky. Everything down there is super, super cool and paranormal. They always yeah. have something to talk about, so it makes sense. They that have it's a lot kind of, to talk about. They've yeah. got plenty. With the other podcast, with the, with the other podcast episode that we did with uh, Mary Laveau, yes, and yeah, Laurie, like it, there's so much. And down that's just there. the top of like the exactly there's like a rainfall of effects that you could talk about and things that you could talk about there you could throw a fucking stone in new orleans and it's haunted something's haunted yeah you could yeah yeah you can throw a stone down the street anywhere in new orleans and it'll touch a place that is haunted all i have to say is if i'm walking around new orleans alone at night i'm definitely playing jazz off of my phone oh same just so i'm not like walking to yeah because now you know i got myself thinking about the shadow man so i'm like i'm gonna come back i'm like man maybe the x-man was a ghost maybe he (laughs) was a ghost the entire time freaky i don't know yeah i did not know all that info about the x-man of new orleans i didn't know much i didn't know there were that many victims I didn't know until she brought it up, like, maybe it's something we could talk about, and I was like, I have to, like, read about it. Yeah, because I, I didn't know no that. I have no idea who he was. I re- I've never really looked into it or researched that much, but it's pretty cool. But we have another axe murder to talk about. One of the creepiest and most famous unsolved murders in German history happened in 1922 
on an isolated farmstead in Bavaria known as Hinterkaifeck. Lorenz Schlitzenbauer and his friends were met with the grisly scene on April 4th, 1922. They discovered that the entire Gruber family had been slaughtered. Despite an abundance of police interviews, the mystery of the Hinterkaifeck murders remains unsolved. Jordan, can you walk us through this mysterious, disturbing story yes. of Hinterkaifeck? But first I just want to say that farms creep me out. Do they? Yes, because you remember the scene in Twister? Yes. How they're running from the freaking big ass. Yes, they enter the first barn and it has and all it has those. all that shit hanging on them. Oh my god. It's like, that would be the worst place to be stuck. Like, if you were get, like getting chased by a murderer or if you're being haunted by ghosts. Like, who wants to be around all the big ass machines and the sharp objects in, in the shed? Right. Like, that, I don't know. It just, just freaks me out. I just had to make a side note about that. The reason why this specific axe murder um, stood out to me was the fact that there's so much different like opinions on the fact that it could be a paranormal, like negative demonic or like otherworldly event that happened instead of it just being like a person. But that could also be because like people don't want to believe that like a normal person right. on the planet could have, could have done, done this. this. Yeah. So. Um, would you want an evil ghost or an axe-wielding crazy person um, to come and get you? That make, make your choice. So the family that lived on the farm was Andreas Gruber and Cecilia Gruber, their widowed daughter, Victoria. Her husband actually died in World War I. Um, Victoria's children, Cecilia and Joseph. Joseph was two and Cecilia, little mini-me, was um, seven. So they were pretty young. Yeah. Um, the family had a reputation of keeping to themselves, seeing as the neighbors were super far away, which we discussed was kind of how it was back in that time. Because people were so far away and their neighbors were extremely far, hearing anything going on the farm was rare. They really didn't even notice that these people were there. Right. They were these kind of hermits. Are, like people are living on a huge piece of land because it's a farm. Yeah. Your neighbors are not close at all. In other variations of the story, most of the people didn't care too much for the family. While I was doing some research, I found out that the reputation of the father or husband, Andreas, was pretty shitty. That he was like really? a terrible person. Um, apparently, he would beat his wife and children, molesting and or raping them too. Ooh. Yeah, so he was a shitty person, which is another reason why people kind of like stayed away from the family. On... One super extreme is that he apparently beat some of his children to death, which is why most of them didn't live to adulthood. Jeez. There's really not not nice things I can say about him. Um, from a few sources, I found out that Victoria was the only child to live to adulthood, evading her father's mistreatment. This could possibly be due to an ancestral sexual relationship that he had with her, which is extremely disgusting That's and gross. gross. <laughs> Pretty much, Andrea seemed obsessed with her and didn't want her to get remarried, even though she had a bunch of men that apparently were interested in marrying her and, mm. you know, being a part of their family. Victoria was the most active in the town, attending church and singing in the choir, so they were used to seeing her more, and, like, she was one of the only family members that people really, like, cared for right. and liked in the town. About six months before the murders, rumors of demonic and or paranormal activity circulated around the town when a maid suddenly quit her job. Interesting. This was because of noises she kept hearing in the house, especially the attic. Which oh. reminds me a lot of the well, axe murder you talked yeah. about. Yeah. Um, 
apparently the attic was supposed to be empty but she kept hearing footsteps and like things moving around one thing that really stood out to me when i was like looking into this is that people reported that she looked older when she left the house and paler mm. and almost like malnourished and like sickly it's probably because she was so stressed out like right. if she thought that the house was haunted like could you imagine living somewhere where you're constantly like stressed out and paranoid thinking that something else is either it's there it's gonna make you not look too well <laughs> yeah 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 so when she broke news to the family that she was leaving the family assumed that she was just mentally disturbed and kind of didn't believe whatever she was talking about in the days leading up to the murders, Andreas had been noticing some strange things at the farm, such as, ironically, footsteps. Um, he heard them up in the attic, but he also found them in the snow leading out of the woods and towards the house. And they never he never found tracks leading back out. So, That's creepy. Yeah, it seemed like, like somebody got in his house and stayed there. Um, he couldn't find anybody near the house, but he heard noises, like the maid said, like I said, up in the attic. And he did go up there and found nothing. And these, obviously, this was heard because eventually he goes and talks to his neighbors about it. So he goes over to his neighbor's house and is like, hey guys, you guys hear or see anything? Blah, 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 blah. Naturally, people are like, no. Another thing that he found was that um, there were multiple scratches or cuts on the tool shed door as if something was trying to break in. And one of the family's house keys just so happened to disappear. So he, those were all the things that he brought up to his neighbors, like when he went and tried to figure out if like anybody else had weird occurrences right. near them, if there was something like going on, because you know, like I said, he's a recluse. The family didn't really talk to people. Even though he went and talked to like the neighbors, he didn't go to the police at all with any of this information. So he brought it up to his neighbors to be like, "Hey, do you guys know anything?" But then didn't think it was serious enough to go tell the police, right. like, hey, somebody t may have taken my house key. Hey, somebody may be looking around my house. Like, didn't think it was a big deal. Like, people nowadays would be like, yo, there's some yeah. stuff going on, you know? Like, So eventually, um, a new maid started. Her name was Maria. She was 44 years old. She was only there at the house for a few hours before the murders. So she oh. just started brand new. Worst first day oh. of work ever. <laughs> that is some shitty luck. Yeah. So the family stopped showing up to places where they usually are were supposed to be. Little Cecilia didn't show up to school on April 1st. Soon the family's absence from church was noticed. Like they noticed that um, Victoria wasn't there, which was a really big deal. And also a considerable amount of mail started piling up in the post office. By April 4th, the townspeople started to search for them. Upon entering the barn, they found the mother with her skull cracked open with multiple blows to the head, as well as bearing signs of strangulation. Ooh. The father, Andreas, had blood caked all over his face, which was described as shredded, a shredded look. Damn. That's gnarly. Um, his cheekbone was sticking out of his ragged flesh. Ew. Wow. I did to stop on that one I was like, okay the daughter victoria also had her skull shattered with signs that her face had been hit with a blunt object the young cecilia had her jaw shattered and her face and neck were covered with slashing wounds oh, poor girl they all likely died instantly with the exception of victoria's daughter the autopsy revealed later that she had lived several hours after the murders oh Clumps of her own hair were found in her hands, suggesting that she had torn out her hair herself in distress before dying of shock. Another correlation with your story is that these bodies were also found partially covered, this time with hay, because they were found in a barn. Right. So it shows signs that somebody 
may have been remorseful for what they'd done. There were no defensive wounds to any of them, so it was believed that they were led into the barn one by one, which is weird to me. Like, why? Did that's, they know the person? Did they not think that it was a big deal? Like, that's odd. Yeah. Like, I was, I was going to say it's odd that they were all outside in the barn together dead. Yeah, all four of them so far. Um, the maid Maria and little Joseph were found inside the farmhouse. So they were inside their house, covered with sheets and a dress. The two of them seemed to have died fairly quickly with a number of blows to the head and face. The tool used in this murders was a mattock. I don't know if you know what that is. It's like a like a pickaxe. Oh, okay. Like, a, like the one that yeah, you yeah, use. Yeah. Not like the pointy one. It's more like the one side is like flat. So yeah. it's to use to like break apart the ground. So all six of the members of the household were brutally murdered with no suspect in sight. These people had no idea who this could be because they never, there no tracks. They never found right. anybody after it. So... Once they started investigating, they had a couple suspects, but despite the horrifying fates of the family, the search party found that farm animals and the family dog had not been harmed and had, in fact, been fed and tr- tended to for days in between the murder and the discovery. Oh, yeah. so, so, so whoever did this tended there. to the animals. Yeah, super creepy. Um, apparently they saw smoke coming from a chimney in the house as well, suggesting that the murderer had been living calmly in the farm. There has been some speculation that the killer sat up in the attic for six months before the killings, and then a couple days after the murders. So this person waited out, almost just like your... The Vasilla axe murders, right, in the attic, just waiting, watching. Why the attic? What you people do in I guess the attic? People know, I guess because the families don't really go up in the attic. Yeah, maybe they didn't you know? use it like the way we do now. Some people put storage up there. Maybe they just... Maybe if it's just storage, like how often would someone go in an yeah, attic? Yeah, once a year for you your know? Halloween stuff. I mean, That's, did, that's me. I, yeah, I know. That's the only <laughs> one I had. <laughs> At first, they wanted to rule this a robbery, like the police and everything, but found nothing was taken. Weirdly, there was even a large amount of money that was barely hidden laying out in the home. So all that money was laying there and somebody just chose to kill all these people instead of right. robbing it. Like if this was some kind of that would have been gone. evil squatter traveling person, they would have, they would need money, but it was just it was still laying there. And during the investigation, this is the, this is the weird part. Like I thought that this was weird. While investigating, they found that Victoria took all of the money out of her bank account, all of it donated some and then made it seem as if she was going to move into a, like a new place of her own. That seems like she almost knew something, in my opinion. That's like as if yeah. she knew either somebody was coming after them or if she knew like she maybe something traumatic was going on and she finally had enough. Like we stated before, her dad was a piece of shit. So there was there's lots of questions and it's still speculation. So a couple of suspects... They had a bunch. There was, like you said, a bunch of... Interviews. Yeah. You're right. Most interesting ones, in my opinion, was Lorenz Schlitzenbauer. <laughs> Sorry. I'm German and you can't fucking tell. And um, <laughs> He was the one that was one of the first ones on the scene. Yeah. He led the search party, basically. Gotcha. We'll get to that. So, um, the other one that I thought was interesting was Paul Mueller. Mueller? I don't know if I'm pronouncing his last name right, but Lorenz was believed to have a relationship with Victoria and may have even been the father to Joseph. Oh. Yeah, scandalous. 
Early on in the investigation, the locals thought he looked kind of bad because um, immediately after the discovery of the bodies, when they arrived, he broke in the gate to enter the barn because all of it was locked up, you know. However, immediately after finding four bodies in the barn, he apparently unlocked the front door with a key and entered the house alone while everybody was still in the barn. So... A key was missing. Yeah. And now he has a key. Super suspicious. Yeah. You know what this sounds like to me? <laughs> to me, it sounds like the daughter was in a relationship with this guy, gave him a key to the house. Yeah. But daddy, who was obsessed with the daughter, yeah. didn't want them to have a relationship. Like, like... I see, like, Victoria and this guy, like, planning on starting a life, and which is why she would take money out and maybe be moving somewhere, and maybe Daddy didn't like that and pretty much said, no, this is not going to happen, and maybe Lorenz got a little pissed off. And then just killed But Daddy. why would he kill the whole family? Yeah, I was just thinking you know? maybe, maybe she got involved, too, like, when he was... Maybe he made the plan or, or of murdering, may, or and maybe, then she tried to stop it, and then he killed her, too. Correct. Or maybe she was just, you know, bending to her father's will and broke up with him and he couldn't take it. And he knew she had all that money. Maybe he wanted it. But, that, I mean, it said that he didn't take it. Nobody took money yeah. to axe murder, so that kind of... So it seems a little a more bust. personal. <laughs> so yeah, I could absolutely. see why this guy is a suspect. Yeah. When he was asked by his companions why he had gone into the house alone, when it was unclear if the murderer might still be in there, he allegedly stated that he went to look for his son, Joseph. So he So he even thinks that that's his son. Yeah, he thought that that was his kid. So they definitely have a relationship. Yeah, yeah, it seemed like like there was something else going on. But regardless of any of the above rumors, um, it is known that he disturbed the bodies at the scene, which we know potentially compromised the investigation. He was later cleared from the murders, being that they couldn't place him at the crime scene at the time of the deaths. So, Mm -hmm. but I mean, that doesn't mean anything. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, you know, like that's not, how do they know for sure? Yeah. Like he seems so sketchy and like, Like, unless something's on record that he was somewhere like, exactly. Like if he was in a group of, people like they don't know because he went and found them and was like oh my gosh something's going on like they haven't been around we should go check he's by himself how do you know like you know what i mean another suspect paul which i thought was really interesting um an author by the name of bill james wrote a book called the man from the train and it alleged that a man known as paul muller if that's how you pronounce his last name don't kill me may have been responsible for the murders Paul was the only suspect in the 1897 murder of a Massachusetts family, and the author believes Paul killed dozens of victims based on research in an American newspaper archive. So he must have been, like, really searching while he was doing research to find stuff that goes back into the 1800s, late 1800s. The Hinterkaifeck murders bear some similarities due to Paul's suspected crimes in the United States, including the slaughter of an entire family in their isolated home, the use of a blunt edge of a farm tool as a weapon, like a pickaxe, and the apparent absence of robbery as a motive. The author later suspects that Paul might have departed from the United States for his homeland of Germany after private investigators and journalists began to notice and publicize patterns in the family's murders across state lines. 
So he thinks that he committed the Villisca murders and other similar type murders throughout yeah. the United States and then fled and I think, did these ones in Germany. Yeah, I think Kayla talked about this one. Um, the Colorado Springs murders, the author apparently had some right. way of combining all of those. Wow. Yeah. And even the New Orleans, like all of it. He combined to this That would be person. a it's crazy a, yeah. spree of family murders. Yeah. So he's not really like considered like a suspect, considered, you know, like this was later on where this guy pulled all these archives right. out. But I just thought it was really cool that this person, who's just an author doing research on his book, found like... All these similarities. Evidence. Like he literally yeah. found evidence to try to put all of this, all this murder and like carnage up against this one guy but i just thought that a crazy connection to all of this is that basically it's a killer in the attic yeah like and he just stays there and waits <laughs> yeah maybe the string of killers and not only that but like remember in uh uh Villisca, how he just calmly started like making himself food yeah and now here we have with uh hinter kaifek he's you know making himself food he's tending to the animals yep. just like Hates he just lives there animals you know <laughs> yeah just making himself like home. It's bizarre. So unfortunately, a year after, the farm was completely demolished, so you can't go visit. Uh. But additional evidence was found, including the, the murder weapon that was found in the attic and a pen knife hidden in the, in the hay of the barn. So, like I said, I don't have anything spooky to talk about. No, but that's a really <laughs> creepy story. Like, I could see this being made into a movie. It would be fantastic. Yeah. Um, but the similarities are actually quite shocking. Yeah. There's a monument nearby, like, for the family and to pay their respects. So I almost wonder if, like, maybe there's some sort of, like, attachment there. Like, could maybe, be. even though you're and outside. Who knows? Maybe, the, maybe even though there's no structures, maybe the grounds are still haunted. Because they talk about that, um, the Donner Party monument, that apparently there, that site is pretty haunted. So I wonder oh, wow. maybe that's the case and people just haven't picked up on it yet. Wow, that'd be interesting to find out. Yeah, that would be. Maybe we'll have to take a trip to Germany. <gasps> Woo, let's go. Be with my people. <laughs> <laughs> so these were axe murders in the 1900s. Thank you all for listening. Unfortunately, this is all the time we have for today. Stay spooky. Talk to you later. Enjoy your nightmares. Bye.